last week, for those of you who were here, we spoke something somewhat about the quality of sacred presence. And tonight I'd like to be a bit more practical or specific in that regard. Like us to begin uh, tonight before adding other words with a simple chant that we've done sometimes, the chant that's considered the first and last sound of life, or the chant that is also considered the summary of all the texts on perfect wisdom in one syllable which saves a lot of study on your part. Um, The reason the syllable is the sound of wisdom is it's the sound of letting go. So it's the seed syllable, ah. And I'd like us just to make the sound or chant together the sound ah for a bit and then rest in the silence afterward. There is a certain harmony that you can hear in the simple chanting of that sound together. It gets quite lovely after a bit of time. And there's an equally wonderful harmony that happens when the sound ends. And it's the harmony that takes place in the spaciousness of silence, beyond the sound. Here we are at a meditation center. Last week when I spoke about the quality of sacred space or sacred presence, 
I reminded people of the uh, Im- of the image of Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Zen master, who was one of the guests at uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's World Forum last September in San Francisco um, for world peace, revisioning the world's future. Um, and how Thich Nhat Hanh, who was the luncheon speaker, kind of like the Rotary or something like that, <laughs> was there, you know, giving his speech with Maggie Thatcher and George Bush and Secretary of State George Shultz and so forth. And he had them all mindfully peel an orange together. And as, as Ramdas said in describing the scene, he said, they didn't know what hit them, right? Because <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh has this extraordinary presence of mindfulness. Even as he walks in the room, there's a way in which one can feel it. And there they were with his instruction simply stopping all their conversation about global this and global that and what we might do and should do, just stopping for a moment to be alive and peel open an orange and smell it and sense it in their fingers be present for it and to be awake. Is it okay, sound? Okay. To be alive and present for that experience of the orange was really to be here for your moment of life that you see or smell or taste and you're actually present for it, there's a kind of freedom of the heart that happens in that moment. Because we're not bound by our thoughts and imaginings, past and future. How to awaken to this sacred presence? The practice of awakening in the Buddhist tradition is called mindfulness. And this mindfulness, it's okay, has two, has two aspects to it. The first is in mindfulness or presence, there's a kind of learning, a seeing, a noticing, so that we understand what is present just now and then can respond to it wisely. So one quality of noticing is learning, discovery. The second quality of this mindfulness might be called simply being. Ananda, the attendant to the Buddha, asked him at one point, asked the Blessed One, as it said, what is the abode, the resting place of all Buddhas? And the Buddha smiled and replied, All Buddhas rest in mindfulness. That is, a presence with life as it is, a balance or a freedom that is both spacious and empty, and at the same time filled with compassion. The Buddha again said, I know of nothing, of no thing, more helpful 
than mindfulness. How is this so? People are selling a lot of different things in this world. What makes you sure this is the, you know, the most helpful? Let me give you an example. John Kabat-Zinn, who is a dear friend, and many of you may have heard of him from Bill Moyers' series on healing or his books on mindfulness in health and hospitals and clinics and so forth. Um, and meditation. Anyway, John Kabat-Zinn, after studying mindfulness meditation and other practices, set up a clinic in the basement of the medical school in in Massachusetts called um, the Mindfulness-Based Stress or Pain Reduction Clinic. And he was in the basement of this Massachusetts medical school for 15 years there before he became well known. And the people that would get sent down to the basement, to John's clinic, were the ones primarily that all the other doctors had given up on. They were the worst cases, the ones who were chronic and unresponsive, who had injuries and back pains and cancer, and the hundred other things that are beyond the treatment of modern medicine. You know what those things are. So they sent them down finally. What else to do? We'll send them down to John. (laughs) And what they did in sending him down to John was to send them down to someone who worked with the greatest power of all, kind of the big gun, somebody said, in the arsenal in the medical school, which was mindfulness. Because the practice of mindfulness is to be with things as they are. So there was John, and these people would come who had tried everything, and he said, suppose that we just sit down for some time and start to investigate or relate to what is actually so, without trying to do anything about it at all. We have the power to be in the presence of what is so just now, and to understand it in that way. And often, of course, it would start with pain. And we have such powerful conditioning in our culture. We've learned to fear pain, and to fear discomfort, and to think that if things aren't comfortable or the right way, the way we hope or think they should be or feel, that we've done something wrong, that my God, there's something wrong with our body or the circumstances around us. How many of you try everything to avoid discomfort or some things to avoid discomfort? How many of you still have pain anyway? Don't bother. But somehow in our society it's a mistake that things should be uncomfortable or that there should be pain. And instead John said, all right, how about if we finally sit down and see things as they are, be with them as they are. And that meant first investigating what is this pain? And pain is the word, but if you bring your attention 
your mindfulness to it. It's throbbing and pain and tightness and, and aching and tingling and vibration and stretching and all kinds of energies that move fire within you. Oh, it's actually alive. It's painful and it's also interesting. And then layered around the pain is the contraction and the aversion and all the stories that shouldn't be here and the fears, what I'll become if it continues. Do you know all those things that get layered around it? He said, well, let's see if we can just look directly at our experience of those as well. The hopes, the fears, I don't want it to be this way, to see all of that. And in experiencing, those begin to drop away and they're simply the direct experience of here's this body and here's certain pain and certain pleasure. It is how it is. And quite amazingly, all those reactions, it shouldn't be this way and I've got to fix it and I'm so afraid and so forth, were really the pain. The other was kind of straight pain, you know, like scotch without water or anything. It was just how it was, right? But the rest was kind of the bar scene around it, you know, with <laughs> vomit in the corners and, you know, people in all kinds of states and so forth. It wasn't very neat. So how about being able to bow to things as they are? It means sometimes going down in the basement in one's experience, as we did with John. Recently, I came back from teaching in New England, and um, someone who was driving through Maine described, you know, the rocky coast of Maine, described taking this kind of small, almost one-lane dirt road down to the beach where there are these huge rocks and so forth, and the road ended. It was a dead-end road, and at the end of the road there was a sign, one of those kind of yellow road signs, and it had an arrow pointing either direction, although the road had ended, and one side said rock, and the other side said hard place. <laughs> I guess that's where we are, huh? So what mindfulness offers is this immense and extraordinary capacity of the human heart to be with things as they are, to relate to them, to relate to what is just now. Well, why should we do this? Because it is only here, when we are here, that we can learn freedom. And it is only here that we can be alive. And it is only here in this moment that we can open the heart of compassion. Only here. In this way, mindfulness is a listening, an intimacy, a relationship with what is so.
the traditional training in this practice or this possibility is called the path of mindfulness. And again, the invitation from the Buddha is straightforward. My friends, said the Buddha, there's a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the true path and realize liberation. And this is the establishment of mindfulness. He goes on, how does one do this? One goes to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to an empty room, to a quiet place and sits down holding one's body erect and becomes simply aware, establishing mindfulness or presence, (laughs) breathing in, knowing it is an in-breath, breathing out, this is an out-breath, a long breath, a short breath, being aware of feelings, this is the arising of pleasant feelings, This is the arising of painful feeling. This is the arising of neutral feeling. Being aware of the states of mind. This is the desiring mind. Ah, this is the mind without desire. This is the mind of fear. This is the mind without fear. This is the mind of confusion to see it as it is. This is the mind when confusion ceases. Being aware of breath and body, of feelings and mind, the practitioner of mindfulness is established in awareness and notices this is suffering, entanglement. This is the end or the release of suffering. It's compassion or freedom from entanglement. With the quality of mindfulness, each moment is new. We have the word orange. We've seen bags of them in the supermarket. Remember they used to have that kind of woven green stuff. Now it's sort of plastic bags instead. But there they are and you open them and there are those oranges. But actually to hold and smell and look at and taste, each orange is new. Each moment is new. Each moment of seeing another human being is new. Can we learn to be here with this moment, with a kind of freshness of eyes, of heart? I remember many years ago going down to the Ojai Valley to listen to the talks that Krishnamurti would give in the spring. And he sat in this little wooden chair um, under these huge spreading live oak trees in, a, in a, a beautiful area of Ojai Valley, surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people, very dignified sitting there, giving his talks. I remember one day sit, seated there, 
and he spoke for much of the day on death and letting go and that which was beyond death. It was completely captivating. It was very compelling. And toward the end of the afternoon, he said, well, I, I had been thinking about speaking of freedom as well. Would that interest you? Everyone said, yes, yes. He said, are you tired? Are you not tired then? No, no, people said. He said, well, then you haven't really been listening. <laughs> Leave it to Krishnamurti anyway. I don't know about being tired. What I find is that to really listen brings a freshness and an aliveness to the present. To listen without expectations. Mindfulness is attention without judgment, good, bad, right, wrong, without plans or needs or ideas. There's an innocence to mindfulness, to see with innocence. It's an incredible gift to others. People love to be listened to in that way. Try it. Try it in your family, you know, or your lovers, your friends. Listening to our bodies in that way. Listening to the environment as we walk or drive, the needs of the community and the environment of nature and our place in it. Listening to silence, the space between the busyness. This is meditation. Try it. It's okay for a bit, but then often one begins to notice as you sit and listen different kinds of expectations. If we didn't take a minute as we just did, but five or ten in the middle of this talk, some of you would notice being bored. Is that what we're going to do, just sit here? Some might notice that they're tired. Your body kind of taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, remember me? You've been running me around a lot. Ah, thank you for sitting me down. Some might feel their restlessness. 
or the tension in their bodies. We sit in silence for a while. Some might notice a kind of disappointment. I didn't come just to sit here. I want instructions, stories, healing, inspiration, something. I want something to happen. You know, my friend Sharon Salzberg called that waiting meditation. Right? <laughs> You're sitting, waiting, 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 waiting for something. And what waiting says inwardly is, this isn't it. I don't know what it is, but this isn't it. This couldn't be it. Got to be something else. Endless excitement. Perfect peace. Both together. Or at least a good Chardonnay. This isn't it. And that's what we're conditioned and trained to do in this culture. One thing after another, get more and more and more and have more experiences and watch more TV and go to better movies and, you know, have more terrific sexual experiences and more wonderful aesthetic experiences and make more money and do more creative things and serve more people and get worn out, basically. And I fall into it in the same way. <clears throat> Before some of the Dharma talks, you know, I come here on Monday night and I sense myself getting nervous. I want to help, be really helpful. <laughs> I want to please people, right? I want to be liked and admired. Or at least, more deeply, I don't want to make a fool of myself. <laughs> and so those thoughts are there, and if I'm not aware of them, then I get kind of nervous, and is this going to be an okay talk, and will they like it, and is it okay? And, and I, that sort of that question rumbles around like, like subterranean gossip under there, as Trumpa used to call it. You know that? And you know what it is? It's suffering. Isn't it? It's a lot of suffering. What will they think? And is it, am I going to be okay? And is it going to be okay? Zen Master Ryokan. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine, talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. <laughs> There comes a moment when I become aware of that fear and how's it going to be and so forth. When I become aware or mindful, see, oh, that's fear again. I know you. Yeah. And then I realize it's not about me at all. It's simply that I'm here to speak about the Dharma. The Dharma is a description of how things are. You can like it or not like it or, you know, plug up your ears or go away in some state or other. That's fine. It's simply to describe our experience in a way. The Dharma is the description of experience that leads us to freedom.
So it doesn't have anything to do with me or you. It's simply how things are. But without it, there's expectation and suffering. In any moment of our suffering, any of you have suffering in your experience? In any moment of our suffering, you can feel how much ideas, hopes, needs, expectations, likes and dislikes we bring to our life, how it should be in any situation of suffering. And the trap of that makes a lot of suffering, doesn't it? I mean, I saw this two-year-old kid in the grocery store the other day, one of those sort of usual unfortunate grocery store happenings and the kid was throwing a tantrum and the parent was embarrassed and upset and so forth and the kid wanted candy and gum and various things like that and the parent was kind of really getting angry at this child um, like you shouldn't want that stuff and things and I'm thinking what do you expect he's two years old you know and there's all this colorful stuff that that people spend um, years in Madison Avenue trying to design to capture the two-year-old in all of us, right? To say, yes, you want that. I mean, that's people, psychol the world's best psychologists have been working to make it kind of vibrate and reach out to you and say, buy me. And here's this little innocent two-year-old, oh yeah, of course, you give me a break. And this parent was saying, don't be a two-year-old. When really, I mean, they may have needed to bring him in there, but really, a supermarket is simply not a place for a two-year-old. It isn't, you know? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Some of you it might be. Um, but more than that, um, it would be really unrealistic, an enormous amount of suffering for the parent and the child, for them to hope and expect and try and make a two-year-old be something different. Here's a more poignant story of expectation that I've heard from a friend whose father was in the Second World War and it was he was there in some of the battles it was very traumatic for him and kind of the defining moments <coughs> of his life that what happened in the um, assault in Normandy and after that and so forth. Uh, and that defining moment is still with him in some way. It made him a difficult father. Anyway, he called his father, this man, to say that um, he and uh, his family were going on a trip to Europe. He was sort of describing the trip. And he said, then, and then we're going to drive from Amsterdam down, um, down all the way down to Marseille. And his father's response was, you can't go that way. The, Ger the Germans bombed the hell out of those roads. That was his father's response. Fifty years later. But we all do that. When we meet someone again, we bring that 
memory. That's okay. We need to have the memory and the opinions and judgments and fears in such a predominant way that it's hard to see what's actually here. The eyes of that person with the innocence again in a new way. Unwilling and, uh, unwillingly and unconsciously, we carry a lot of expectations. And these expectations make racism and prejudice and divisiveness and discontent and suffering. Our expectations also can be felt as a contraction, as a wall. They kind of define us and how things should be. They make the small sense of self. They are the body of fear. Mindfulness Presence is that quality of openness without judgment, without plan, not grasping what's pleasant, not resisting what's painful, not ignoring what's neutral. It's an open-hearted presence an ease or compassion that is fresh. And it has an amazing effect even in a moment, peeling the orange at lunchtime with Thich Nhat Hanh, everything stops, and you remember you're on this earth eating the fruits of the earth again. In one monastery that I've talked about at other times, Wat Tamkaborg in southern Thailand, they have the largest addictions treatment program in Southeast Asia and the most successful one. And every 10 days, a group of two or 300 people who are strung out on opium, heroin, crack, various things come through this program of herbal remedies and run by a group of monks who've gone through it themselves, and primarily held by this master, the abbot of Wat Tamkaborg, who had been a Thai narcotics agent, and whose old aunt, a Buddhist saint, said, you know, Sonny, you're doing it all wrong. Come and shave your head and give up the, you know, the, the narc routine, and I'll show you how to really heal people taught him herbal medicine and meditation, and he became a real master. And when you come in, it's busy. People are coming and going and getting sick through this herbal kind of purification that they give you, and uh, all kinds of groups of people going through this process. And in the middle of it is the abbot. He has this place to sit near the center of the monastery, and he's just there. He's this great big guy. And he's seen a lot of people come and a lot of people go. And he sits there. And I think that a big part of what makes people heal is that he believes that they can. And they see it in his eyes and he sees it in them. It's somehow that his knowing and his being, his presence, is bigger than their addiction. 
So we come and we sit, Mondays or retreats, whenever, with a kind of dignity and ease, and our body becomes the temple. This is our temple, within which to create a space of attention, to remind ourselves of our Buddha nature, of the possibility of being open with an awareness that is like space itself, with kindness and attention, allowing our life to open. All the knots and reactions and fears and tension and stories, all of that to be spacious with. And in this, to remember the intrinsic freedom that is our true nature. Let's do it for a moment. Begin by noticing our bodies. And again, this noticing is a kind of listening, listening with all the senses to the sensations of the body, the pain and tension and pleasure, really the music of those sensations, to hear them and feel them. And also to sense or feel the space between the notes, where there is no solid body and no self, just the space and then the notes of tension and tiredness and heat and cold and pleasure and pain. So sit and simply notice the play of aliveness that is the sensations of this moment. And as you notice what is present, let yourself be aware of what sensations or physical experience is the most difficult for you that's present now. What's the hardest to really open to? Let's work with that and the simple practice of naming. As you feel that, it might be tiredness or tightness or pain, whatever it is, tension. Begin to name it softly, feeling it carefully. What is the quality right in the middle of it? So you sense it deeply. And give it a soft name, tension, tension, or hot, hot, or pain, pain. 
And as you name it softly, tension, 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 give it space to expand or move or change or open. A very kind awareness that's like the sky. And you name it softly and give it the space to move as it will. And sense what happens as you name it. Maybe it gets bigger, moves somewhere else, changes into another energy. Then name that expanding or powerful pain or more heat or moving, moving. Feel where it goes with a spacious and kind attention like the sky. Now let's shift attention. You could stay with the body experience. Let's shift attention to the moods and feelings as you sit. Pleasant or unpleasant ones, neutral. Might be peacefulness or sadness or boredom or fear or grief or restlessness or excitement and love. Notice what mood is present just now. Mindfulness, the space to notice. And as you feel it, sense its texture, its quality, is it contracted or expanded? Allow it to be felt. And naming it softly, give an open space, a kind space, to see what happens. Sad, 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 or excitement, excitement. And let it open and expand, fill the space, dissolve, do whatever it likes in the space of awareness. Name it softly. Sense how big it wants to get. How long it lasts. What it changes into. And the silence that is all around it, much bigger.
take just a few minutes, let me ask you, anyone, did you notice sensations in your body? And when you named them and gave them space, what happened to them? What was your experience? Or did you notice a mood that was present? And by mindfully giving it space with a kind attention, naming it, what happened to it? Someone want to describe their experience, please? It grew, kind of like a balloon what, what was the sensation or experience? There was tension. Where was it? Uh, across my face. Across your face, and you named tension, tension, and it grew? It grew like a, yeah. Like a balloon, it, it expanded. And then what happened? And then it seemed to, it seemed like the ends of it kind of got soft, and it, it seemed to kind of go away, dissipate on the end. And then I could just feel it in a more centered, in one spot. It softened and dissolved. Yeah. Lovely. Someone else experience. Please. Moods, yes. understandings, and then I kept witnessing acquiring understanding, acquiring understanding. I, I did see it, and then I got bored of witnessing, and I started daydreaming. Mm. So you noticed the acquiring mind, getting this and getting that, and then you said there came in boredom. I got bored of witnessing that. And then, not, not staying with the boredom, then it changed into daydreaming. So you could notice the process of being with something, then boredom and probably some aversion, not wanting to stay with it in some subtle way, and then getting lost in daydreams. Lovely. So you could just see that. Someone else. Mood, feeling. Oh, I had a, um, a mood. I couldn't figure out what it was. And so then it was uh, peacefulness. And so as I saw peacefulness, then it got brighter. And, um, and it was interesting because I felt started feeling really happy. And uh, earlier when I'd been sitting, I'd been feeling depressed and feeling like I was going to feel depressed forever. Mm. And so just being able to notice that, you know, it, it just to have such an amazing shift in a short period. So when she started earlier, she'd felt depressed. And when she was in it, it felt like it would last forever. But actually, as she noticed, there was a mood of peacefulness. And she simply noticed that, and then it expanded. It opened, as things will often do, and she realized that she could let that be and actually experience that. And it was a whole different being than that of depression. One thing arises and passes away, and another comes, and then you start to sense the space within which that happens, that space of knowing and being, with body, with feelings, with the mind itself, when it's contracted or filled with thought or longing or hopes or belief. Mindfulness 
allows us to become bigger than that, to step out of that, to not be so caught. Say, yes, there's a story. I've heard that one a lot. We call them the top ten tunes in the meditation retreats. They come back over and over again. Yeah, I've heard that story a lot on the mind show this week. Thank you. There it is. It's number two on the hit parade, right? But the mindfulness becomes the space within which that arises. Then you say, okay, this is fine sitting on your cushion, but how do you extend it to the world around you? When Ajahn Jamnian, the Thai meditation master who was here last month, uh, uh, spent time with the staff at Spirit Rock, he asked them how things were going, and Karen, who works here as the receptionist, talked about getting overwhelmed at some points because there were so many phone calls. It was just a day inundated, hundreds of phone calls, and what to do, and she would get frustrated, and we put in a new voicemail system, and it wasn't working right, and it was voicemail hell, you know, it was horrible, and (laughs) what to do. And he suggested, like Thich Nhat Hanh, first, you know, before you answer the phone, you center yourself. You just breathe. Kind of the phone rings and you make that a place of mindfulness. Oh, the phone's ringing. Ah, time to meditate. <laughs> and then after a couple of rings, you center yourself, then you pick it up. But she described all these people who were calling, you know, and some of them would be frustrated because they didn't like the voicemail and others needed to get into a retreat and others wanted this information and some were very kind and some were angry and so forth. And he said, I'll tell you what, after you, you know, rest for a moment, pick the phone up, then hold it a little bit away from your ear (laughs) and try and simply get a sense of what energy is coming out of that phone. Is it angry or kind or needy or sad or whatever? Just simply name it like it was your own mind, because it's really the same mind, isn't it? Oh, there's that, you know. And already that helps, because you know it doesn't have anything to do with you. Neither do your thoughts, really. It's the same thing. They just come, and your feelings, and they go. So see that with mindfulness. Already, she smiled. There was some freedom. There he said, and then if it's an energy that you know you can't deal with in that moment, put them on hold. (laughs) 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 Okay, let's take this a step further. You're getting the sense of mindfulness of what it means to, to pause for a moment, to say what is here, as if you could bow to it. That too. That too. Turn to somebody sitting near you. Don't say anything. Turn to somebody. So that you'll be able to look at them for yeah, just a minute or two. And first, just be present. It doesn't have to be some great, soulful, Sufi kind of stare, right? It's just a kind attention, just to be present. Notice here's another person. Different feelings arise in you as you see this person, and so forth. There they are, breathing and looking and listening as you are. And as you see this person... Let's just play with it for a minute. Imagine that they're about to be quite angry at you and about to blame you 
just for a moment they've got there's a lot of stuff they have to say about you you know and sense that that would be there in them it's possible you know and that's that's what's there okay let that go for a moment just be with a neutral space Ah, and continue to look at them. Imagine now that they're fearful and needy. They'll need you all night and all day for a long time, you know. They need so much from you. And that's what's going to come, that energy they're afraid and they need a lot. Just a picture, imagine that that's the energy that's there. It might be, you don't know. And that's the energy. You notice it. Be present for that. Let that pass. Again, let there just be a sense of ease in space. Nothing. One more. Imagine that they're in a state of great loving kindness, respectful. They just want to connect, share their experience with you. That's another energy. More pleasant one. Notice that quality. Your ability simply to notice that, how that feels, your mindfulness. And let that pass, just space now, easy, open. And finally, just see them as you see them now, without any of those projections, just this moment. Eyes and face and being and energy. And inwardly see them as if you could bow to them, whatever is there, their pain, their joy, their fear, their love. And acknowledge one another before you end this, again with a little nod or a smile, any way you like silently, a bow. Because what you could see in them is no different than our own pain and fear and confusion and joy and love. It's the pain we share and it's the Buddha nature there in another form. So you bow and you offer your blessings because in the end we're all in it together. Did that make sense to you? That quality of mindfulness with another person? It's like the phone there. I wonder what energy this is. Oh, wow. Hold. Because there is something respectful. Mindfulness is also not only respectful of the energy of others, but it's respectful of ourselves, of what we can do in this moment, what's possible. We have so many expectations. To learn to be mindful is really also to learn to love. Because love is that capacity to be present with another being, with a tree or the animals of the land or the stars or the people around us, to be present without needing them to be some other way. To be with, with them with an open heart, just as they are. 
Someone told me recently that they had been to a party a couple of weeks ago in Hollywood that was given in honor of uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and his visit to uh, do some teachings in Los Angeles. And there were these various movie stars at the party, you know, and I won't go through the list of names and stuff like that, but... Um, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't actually know. I mean, uh, I tried, and somebody told me I can't even remember. I'm sure Richard Gere was there, but I don't know who else. But anyway, they were, you know, it was a Hollywood, Hollywood party in his honor, and he gave a little Dharma talk at one point after people were gathered. And at some point in the Dharma talk, he looked at them and he said, once you're over age 40, it's time to stop seeking approval. <laughs> he said, if you've made it to 40, the universe obviously approves of you. <laughs> and instead, it is time to give approval to others. And that, in a way, is what mindfulness is. That moment when you sat and you saw that person as if they were angry or blaming or fearful and needy or loving and interested and exciting, to give them that moment of attention as if you could bow to them and say, yes, I approve of you as a being. I offer you my presence just as I've given that to myself. To be mindful is to offer our blessings. It's to rest in Buddha nature, to awaken in a moment the great heart of a Buddha that knows that we must be with the sorrows of the world and with the beauties of the world equally. It's a spacious heart that bows to life as it is. And then we can respond. It's not passive. It doesn't mean that you just see it. But then the response comes immediately because you know what to do, what's right for you and for that circumstance, because you're really listening. And you know how it is when someone really, really listens to you. Already, much of what needs to be done is done in that listening. Mindfulness is freedom. It is the freedom of the heart to love everything in this world, to respect everything in this world, and to respond wisely to it. When we become mindful, we become the abbot of the monastery. And it's a big monastery. Let's sit for a minute.
Remember your true nature. Return to it. Rest in it. It's lovely when 300 people are so quiet that you can listen to the crickets outside chirping. Take time during the week to do those things which remind you of this place of stillness. It might be a daily sitting practice. It might be a walk in nature. It might be just that moment of pausing and letting the phone ring two or three times and breathing before you pick it up. Putting it on hold for a moment. I'm sorry. Just take a moment to center yourself. It's what the world needs and it's really what we need to live from that place. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.